Chapter 15, Part 1 of The Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wild Justice, Part 1 A crescent moon hung above the lofty peaks over the valley, and a train of white stars ran along the bold rim of the western wall. A few young frogs peeped plaintively. The night was cool, yet had a touch of balmy spring, and a sweeter fragrance as if the cedar and pinions had freshened in the warm sun of that day. Shefford and Fay were walking in the aisles of moonlight and the patches of shade, as Nas Te Bega, more than ever a shadow of his white brother, followed them silently. Fay, it's growing late. Feel the dew, said Shefford. Come, I must take you back. But the time's so short. I have said nothing that I wanted to say, she replied. Say it quickly, then, as we go. After all, it's only... Will you take me away soon? Yes, very soon. The Indian and I have talked. But we've made no plan yet. There are only three ways to get out of this country. By Stonebridge, by Cayenta, Durango, and by Red Lake. We must choose one. All are dangerous. We must lose time finding Surprise Valley. I hoped the Indian could find it. Then we'd bring Lassiter and Jane here, and hide them near till the dark, then take you and go. That would give us a night's start. But you must help us to Surprise Valley. I can go right to it, blindfolded or in the dark. Oh, John, hurry. I dread the wait. He might come again. Joe says, they won't come very soon. Is it far where we're going? Out of the country? Ten days hard riding. Oh, that night ride to and from Stonebridge nearly killed me. But I could walk very far and climb forever. Fay, we'll get out of the country if I have to carry you. When they arrived at the cabin, Fay turned on the porch step and, with her face nearer a level with his, white and sweet in the moonlight, with her eyes shining and unfathomable, she was more than beautiful. "'You've never been inside my house,' she said. "'Come in. I've something for you.' "'But it's late,' he remonstrated. "'I suppose you've got me a cake or pie, something to eat. You women all think Joe and I have to be fed.' "'No, you'd never guess. Come in,' she said and the rare smile on her face was something Shefford would have gone far to see. Well, then, for a minute. He crossed the porch, the threshold, and entered her home. Her dim, white shape moved in the darkness, and he followed into a room, where the moon shone through the open window, given soft, mellow, shadowy light. He discerned objects, but not clearly, for his senses seemed absorbed in the strange warmth and intimacy of being for the first time with her in her home. "'No, it's not good to eat,' she said, and her laugh was happy. "'Here!' Suddenly she abruptly ceased speaking. Shefford saw her plainly, and the slender form had stiffened, alert and strained. She was listening. "'What was that?' she whispered. "'I didn't hear anything,' he whispered back. He stepped softly nearer the open window and listened. Clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop. 
hard hoofs on the hard path outside. A strong and rippling thrill went over Shefford. In the soft light, her eyes seemed unnaturally large and black and fearful. Clip-clop, clip-clop. The horse stopped outside. Then followed a metallic click of spur against stirrup, thud of boots on hard ground, heavy footsteps upon the porch. A swift, cold contraction of throat, of breast, convulsed Shefford. His only thought was that he could not think. Oh, Mary! A voice liberated both Shefford's muscles and mind. A voice of strange, vibrant power. Authority of religion and cruelty of will. These Mormon attributes constituted that power. And Shefford suffered a transformation which must have been ordered by demons. The sudden flame seemed to curl and twine and shoot along his veins with blasting force. A rancorous and terrible cry leaped to his lips. Oh, Mary! Then came a heavy tread across the threshold of the outer room. Shefford dared not look at Fay, yet dimly, from the corner of his eye, he saw her, a pale shadow, turned to stone with her arms out. If he looked, if he made sure of that, he was lost. When had he drawn his gun? It was there, a dark and glinting thing in his hand. He must fly, not through cowardice and fear, but because in one more moment he would kill a man. Swift as a thought, he dove through the open window, and, leaping up, he ran under the dark pinions toward the camp. Joe Lake had been out late himself. He sat by the fire, smoking his pipe. He must have seen or heard Shefford coming, for he rose with unwanted alacrity, and he kicked the smoldering logs into a flickering blaze. Shefford, realizing his deliverance, came panting, staggering into the light. The Mormon uttered an exclamation. Then he spoke anxiously, but what he said was not clear in Shefford's thick and throbbing ears. He dropped his pipe, a sign of perturbation, and he stared. But Shefford, without a word, lunged swiftly away into the shadow of the cedars. He found relief in action. He began a steep ascent of the east wall, a dangerous slant that he had never dared even in daylight, and he climbed it without a slip. Danger, steep walls, perilous heights, night, and Black Canyon, the same. These he never thought of. But something drove him to desperate effort that the hours might seem short. The red sun was tipping the eastern wall when he returned to camp, and he was neither calm nor sure of himself, nor ready for sleep or food. Only he had put the night behind him. The Indian showed no surprise, but Joe Lake's jaw dropped, and his eyes rolled. Moreover, Joe bore a singular aspect, the exact nature of which did not at once dawn upon Shefford. "'By God, you've got nerve, or you're crazy,' he ejaculated hoarsely. Then it was Shefford's turn to stare. The Mormon was haggard, grieved, frightened, and utterly amazed. He appeared to be trying to make certain of Shefford's being there in the flesh, and then to find reason for it. "'I've no nerve, and I am crazy,' replied Shefford. "'But, Joe, 
What do you mean? Why do you look at me like that? I reckon if I get your horse, that'll square us. Did you come back for him? You'd better hit the trail quick. It's you now who's crazy, burst out Shefford. Wish to God I was, replied Joe. It was then Shefford realized catastrophe, and cold fear gnawed at his vitals, so that he was sick. Joe, what has happened, he asked, with the blood thick in his heart. Hadn't you better tell me, demanded the Mormon, and a red wave blotted out the haggard shade of his face. You talk like a fool, said Shefford sharply, and he strode right up to Joe. See here, Shefford, we've been pards. You're making it hard for me. Reckon you ain't square. Shefford shot out a long arm, and his hand clutched the Mormon's burly shoulder. Why am I not square? What do you mean? Joe swallowed hard and gave himself a shake. Then he eyed his comrade steadily. I was afraid you'd kill him. I reckon I can't blame you. I'll help you get away, and I'm a Mormon. Do you take the hunch? But don't deny you killed him. Killed whom? gasped Shefford. Her husband. Shefford seemed stricken by a slow, paralyzing horror. The Mormon's changing face grew huge and indistinct and awful in his sight. He was clutched and shaken in Joe's rude hands, yet scarcely he felt them. Joe seemed to be bellowing at him, but the voice was far off. Then Shefford began to see, to hear through some cold and terrible deadness that had come between him and everything. So you killed him, hoarsely supplicated the Mormon. Shefford had not yet control of speech. Something in his gaze appeared to drive Joe frantic. Damn you, tell me quick. Say you killed him. If you want to know my stand, why, I'm glad. Shefford, don't look so stony. For her sake, say you killed him. Shefford stood with a face as gray and still as stone. With a groan, the Mormon drew away from him and sank upon a log. He bowed his head. His broad shoulders heaved. Husky sounds came from him. Then, with a violent wrench, he plunged to his feet and shook himself like a huge, savage dog. Reckon it's no time to weaken, he said huskily, and with the words a dark, hard, somber bitterness came to his face. Where is she? whispered Shefford. Shut up in the schoolhouse, he replied. Did she? Did she? She neither denied nor confessed. Have you seen her? Yes. How did she look? Cool and quiet as the Indian there, game as hell. She always had stuff in her. Oh, Joe, it's unbelievable, cried Shefford. That lovely, innocent girl. She couldn't. She couldn't. She fixed him. Don't think of that. It's too late. We ought to have saved her. God, she begged me to hurry to take her away. Think what we can do now to save her, cut in the Mormon. Shefford sustained a vivifying shock. To save her, he echoed. Think, man. Joe, I can hit the trail and let you tell them I killed him, burst out Shefford in panting excitement. Reckon I can. So help me God, I'll do it. The Mormon turned a dark and austere glance upon Shefford. You mustn't leave her. 
She killed him for your sake. You must fight for her now. Save her. Take her away. But the law. Law, scoffed Joe. In these wilds, men get killed, and there's no law. But if she's taken back to Stonebridge, those iron-jawed old Mormons will make law enough to... to... Shefford, the thing is, get her away. Once out of the country, she's safe. Mormons keep their secrets. I'll take her, Joe. Will you help me? Shefford, even in his agitation, felt the Mormon's silence to be a consent that need not have been asked, and Shefford had a passionate gratefulness toward his comrade. That stultifying and blinding prejudice, which had always seemed to remove a Mormon outside the pale of certain virtue, suffered final eclipse, and Joe Lake stood out as a man, strange and crude, but with a heart and a soul. Joe, tell me what to do, said Shefford, with a simplicity that meant he needed only to be directed. Pull yourself together. Get your nerve back, replied Joe. Reckon you'd better show yourself over there. No one saw you come in this morning. Your absence from camp isn't known. It's better you seem curious and shocked like the rest of us. Come on, we'll go over, and afterward we'll get the Indian and plan. They left camp, and crossing the brook, took the shaded path toward the village. Hope of saving Fay, the need of all his strength and nerve and cunning to effect that end, gave Shefford the supreme courage to overcome his horror and fear. On that short walk, under the pinions, to Fay's cabin, he had suffered many changes of emotion, but never anything like this change which made him fierce and strong to fight, deep and crafty to plan, hard as iron to endure. The village appeared very quiet, though groups of women stood at the doors of cabins. If they talked, it was very low. Henninger and Smith, two of the three Mormon men living in the village, were standing before the closed door of the schoolhouse. A tigerous feeling thrilled Shefford when he saw them on guard there. Shefford purposely avoided looking at Fay's cabin as long as he could keep from it. When he had to look, he saw several hooded, whispering women in the yard, and Beale, the other Mormon man, standing in the cabin door. Upon the porch lay the long shape of a man covered with blankets. Shefford experienced a horrible curiosity. Say, Beale, I fetched Shefford over, said Lake. He's pretty much cut up. Beale wagged a solemn head, but said nothing. His mind seemed absent or steeped in gloom, and he looked up as one silently praying. Joe Lake strode upon the little porch, and reaching down, he stripped the blanket from the shrouded form. Shefford saw a sharp, cold, ghastly face. Wagoner, he whispered. Yes, replied Lake. Wagoner. Shefford remembered the strange power in his face, and now that life had gone, that power was stripped of all disguise. Death, in Shefford's years of ministry, had lain under his gaze many times, and in a multiplicity of aspects. But never before had he seen it stamped so strangely. Shefford did not need to be told that here was a man 
who believed he had conversed with God on earth, who believed he had a divine right to rule women, who had a will that would not yield itself to death utterly. Wagoner, then, was the devil who had come masked to Surprise Valley, had forced a martyrdom upon Fay Larkin, and this was the Mormon who had made Fay Larkin a murderess. Shefford had hated him living, and now he hated him dead. Death here was robbed of all nobility, of pathos, of majesty. It was only retribution, wild justice, but alas, that it had to be meted out by a white-souled girl whose innocence was as great as the unconscious savagery which she had assimilated from her lonely and wild environment. Shefford laid a despairing curse upon his own head, and a terrible remorse knocked at his heart. He had left her alone, this girl in whom love had made the great change. Like a coward, he had left her alone. That curse he had visited upon himself, because he had been the spirit and motive of this wild justice, and his should have been the deed. Joe Lake touched Shefford's arm and pointed at the haft of a knife protruding from Wagoner's breast. It was a wooden haft. Shefford had seen it before somewhere. Then he was struck with what perhaps Joe meant him to see, a singular impression the haft gave of one sweeping, accurate, powerful stroke. A strong arm had driven that blade home. The haft was sunk deep. There was a little depression in the cloth. No blood showed, and the weapon looked as if it could not be pulled out. Shefford's thought went fatally and irresistibly to Fay Larkin's strong arm. He saw her flash that wide arm and lift the heavy bucket from the spring with an ease he wondered at. He felt the strong clasp of her hand as she had given it to him in a flying leap across a crevice upon the walls. Yes, her fine hand and the round strong arm possessed the strength to have given that blade its singular directness and force. The marvel was not in the physical action. It hid inscrutably in the mystery of deadly passion rising out of a gentle and sad heart. Joe Lake drew up the blanket and shut from Shefford's fascinated gaze that spare form, that accusing knife, that face of strange, cruel power. "'Anybody been sent for?' asked Lake of Beale. "'Yes, an Indian boy went for the Paiute. We'll send him to Stonebridge,' replied the Mormon. "'How soon do you expect anyone here from Stonebridge?' "'Tomorrow, maybe by noon. Meantime, what's to be done with this?' "'Elder Smith thinks the body should stay right here where it fell till they come from Stonebridge.' "'Wagner was found here, then?' "'Right here.' "'Who found him?' "'Mother Smith. She came over early, and the sight made her scream.' The women all came running. Mother Smith had to be put to bed. Who found Mary? See here, Joe, I told you all I knowed once before, replied the Mormon testily. I forgotten, was sort of bewildered. Tell me again. Who found her? The women folks. She laid right inside the door in a dead faint. She hadn't undressed. There was blood on her hands and a cut or scratch. The women fetched her, too, but she wouldn't talk. Then Elder Smith came and took her, 
They've got her locked up. Then Joe led Shefford away from the cabin, farther on into the village. When they were halted by the somber, grieving women, it was Joe who did the talking. They passed the schoolhouse, and here Shefford quickened his step. He could scarcely bear the feeling that rushed over him, and the Mormon gripped his arm as if he understood. Shefford, which one of these younger women do you reckon your best friend, Ruth? asked Lake earnestly. Ruth, by all means. Just lately I haven't seen her often, but we've been close friends. I think she'd do much for me. Maybe there'll be a chance to find out. Maybe we'll need Ruth. Let's have a word with her. I haven't seen her out among the women. They stopped at the door of Ruth's cabin. It was closed. When Joe knocked, there came a sound of footsteps inside. A hand drew aside the window blind, and presently the door opened. Ruth stood there, dressed in somber hue. She was a pretty, slender, blue-eyed, brown-haired young woman. Shefford imagined from her pallor and the set look of shock upon her face that the tragedy had affected her more powerfully than it had the other women. When he remembered that she had been more friendly with Fay Larkin than any other neighbor, he made sure he was right in his conjecture. Come in, was Ruth's greeting. No, we just wanted to say a word. I noticed you've not been out. Do you know all about it? She gave them a strange glance. Any of the women folk been in? asked Joe. Hester ran over. She told me through the window. Then I barred my door to keep the other women out. What for? asked Joe curiously. Please come in, she said in reply. They entered. She closed the door after them. The change that came over her then was the loosening of restraint. Joe, what will they do with Mary? she queried tensely. The Mormon studied her with dark, speculative eyes. Hang her, he replied, in brutal harshness. Oh, mother of saints, she cried, and her hands went up. You're sorry for Mary, then? asked Joe bluntly. My heart is breaking for her. Well, so's Shefford's, said the Mormon huskily, and mine's kind of damn shaky. Ruth glided to Shefford with a woman's swift softness. You've been my good, my best friend. You were hers, too. Oh, I know. Can't you do something for her? I hope to God I can, replied Shefford. Then the three stood looking from one to the other, in a strong and subtly realizing moment drawn together. Ruth whispered Joe hoarsely, and then he glanced fearfully around at the window and door as if listeners were there. It was certain that his dark face had paled. He tried to whisper more, only to fail. Shefford divined the weight of Mormonism that burdened Joe Lake then. Joe was faithful to a love for Fay Larkin, noble in his friendship to Shefford, desperate in a bitter strait with his own manliness. But the power of that creed by which he had been raised struck his lips mute. For to speak on meant to be false to that creed. Already in his heart he had decided, yet he could not voice the thing. Ruth, Shefford took up the Mormon's unfinished whisper. If we plan to save her, if we need you, will you help? 
Ruth turned white, but an instant and splendid fire shone in her eyes. Try me, she whispered back. I'll change places with her so you can get her away. They can't do much to me. Shefford wrung her hands. Joe licked his lips and found his voice. We'll come back later. Then he led the way out, and Shefford followed. They were silent all the way back to camp. Naste Vega sat in repose where they had left him, a thoughtful, somber figure. Shefford went directly to the Indian, and Joe tarried at the campfire, where he raked out some red embers and put one upon the bowl of his pipe. He puffed clouds of white smoke, then found a seat beside the others. Shefford, go ahead, talk. It'll take a deal of talk. I'll listen. Then I'll talk. It'll be Naste Vega who makes the plan out of it all. Shefford launched himself so swiftly that he scarcely talked coherently, but he made clear the points that he must save Fay, get her away from the village, let her lead him to Surprise Valley, rescue Lassiter and Jane Witherstein, and take them all out of the country. Joe Lake dubiously shook his head. Manifestly, the Surprise Valley part of the situation presented a new and serious obstacle. It changed the whole thing. To try to take the three out by way of Cayenta and Durango was not to be thought of, for reasons he briefly stated. The Red Lake Trail was the only one left, and if that were taken, the chances were against Shefford. It was five days over sand to Red Lake, impossible to hide a trail, and even with a day's start, Shefford could not escape the hard-riding men who had come from Stonebridge. Besides, after reaching Red Lake, there were days and days of desert travel needful to avoid places like Blue Canyon, Tuba, Moenkopi, and the Indian villages. We'll have to risk all that, declared Shefford desperately. It's a fool risk, retorted Joe. Listen, by tomorrow noon, all of Stonebridge, more or less, will be riding in here. You've got to get away tonight with the girl or never, and tomorrow you've got to find that Lassiter and the woman in Surprise Valley. This valley must be back deep in the canyon country. Well, you've got to come out this way again. No trail through here would be safe. Why? You'd put all your heads in a rope. You mustn't come through this way. It'll have to be tried across country, off trails, and that means hell, day and night travel, no camp, no feed for horses, maybe no water. Then you'll have the best trackers in Utah, like hounds on your trail. When the Mormon ceased his forceful speech, there was a silence fraught with hopeless meaning. He bowed his head in gloom. Shefford, growing sick again to his marrow, fought a cold, hateful sense of despair. By nigh, in his extremity, he called to the Indian. The Navajo has heard, replied Naste Vega, strangely speaking in his own language. With a long, slow heave of breast, Shefford felt his despair leave him. In the Indian lay his salvation. He knew it. Joe Lake caught the subtle spirit of the moment and looked up eagerly. End of chapter 15, part 1